0: It is very good to be with you. Um, I have known your pastor and his family for a long time. In fact, his parents served with us on the field, and it's a delight to be able to to be here with this congregation and to open God's Word. I have to say, that last hymn really got to me because we just finished uh, a large class of new missionaries to prepare to send overseas, and this weekend most of them left. And so I wish I had known that song a few days ago. It would have been a very appropriate one to sing to them. If you would, open your Bibles to Matthew 28. It's a very familiar passage. About half of what I'm going to read is on the front of your bulletins. But I'm going to start with verse 16, uh, just to give the context as we we dive into God's Word. So Matthew 28, beginning with verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee and you honor your word very highly. I pray that we would as well. Father, I pray that the same Holy Spirit that inspired Matthew to record these words of Jesus would now be at work in all of us and that you would give us minds to understand what our Lord Jesus has said. That You would also give us hearts to love what Jesus has said and wills to obey Father, we ask that your spirit would be our teacher this morning and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Missions is not a popular subject. Now, I am old enough to remember when it was. Um, I still remember uh, in public school being asked to write a report on a missionary. Of course, we were also still reading the Bible and praying in public schools in those days, which gives those of you who know your history uh, some idea of just how very old I am. Uh, that attitude has completely changed, completely changed. And missions is very unpopular in our society. As a matter of fact, I would say that contemporary culture regards missions as just about the most arrogant thing you could possibly do. I mean, who are you, who am I, to say that I have a message that other people need to embrace and believe or face eternal consequences? That just strikes people as being the height of intolerance. Furthermore, many foreign governments refused to give missionary visas. There was a time, mostly during the colonial period, when most of the world was accessible to missionaries from the West. That day is long gone, and now the majority of those who have not heard the gospel live in countries that do not grant missionary visas and restrict or forbid any access of the gospel to their people. One of the things, though, that's the strangest to me, having been gone from the United States for a very long time and then come back, is to discover that even in the church, it is often discouraged. You hear things from people, not from the pulpit usually, but, you know, in private conversations, things like, oh, but it's so expensive, or it's dangerous. I cannot tell you how many times people have said to me when they heard that I worked in Central Asia, but isn't it dangerous over there? It's kind of like, in my mind, saying, you know, it's fine if, if my kid goes into the army, as long as you promise him it'll never be in danger and no one will ever shoot at him. Uh, but we see something of the 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 disjunction of value systems there that somehow the danger of it is seen as a prohibition and of course we often hear there's so much need here in this country the bottom line often from those who are more my age is i don't want my kids taking my grandkids overseas just to be totally honest so the bottom line for us is what right do we have to do something that both our own culture and many nations around the world feel like we should never do. What right do we have to engage in missionary work? There's also a lot of confusion in the church today as to what exactly we mean by missions anyway. What is the mission of the church? What has God left us here to do? What do we even mean when we use that word missions? For many, I think, missions means any good thing you do outside the walls of the church. I was in Great Britain and got hold of some of the literature that the British Baptist Mission, which is the grandfather of us all, the the very first mission society that sent out the first missionary of the modern era, William Carey, and they defined mission as love in action, gave examples like drug rehabilitation and political activism, and never once mentioned the gospel, never once, and that was mission to them generally speaking what i found is that even in evangelical churches when people talk about missions they're really talking about four things and they're not quite sure how they fit together one of those four is in fact the traditional approach of evangelism disciple making and church planting along with that most people regard missionaries as people who do good stuff missionaries are people who feed the hungry who heal the sick who educate the the illiterate uh, things of, of that nature. And so mercy ministries are generally associated in people's minds also with missions. More lately, there's a couple of other things that have been added to the list. So for instance, increasingly today, we hear about the pursuit of justice as a major component of mission. And that is often regarded as a religious involvement in fundamentally economic and political issues. And then, there is the matter of creating or redeeming culture, which is also popular today. So there are many who feel like our mission is to go out there and to redeem and Christianize the culture around us. And that's something that is getting more and more popular day by day. Well, how do we decide? I mean, there's all these things that people think, how do we make the decision as to what it is we're supposed to do? Two questions then, what right do we have to do it? And what is it anyway? these two questions are answered for us by this text here not just by this text but by this text pointing us to the whole scope of scripture and i want us to look at it this morning the first thing we see the first words out of jesus mouth were these all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me the authority for missions is nothing less than the universal lordship of jesus christ jesus is making an astonishing claim here all authority on heaven and earth given to him. He is sovereign Lord of everything. If you recall, as you look through the gospels, the major theme of Jesus teaching is the kingdom of God. And what we mean by the kingdom of God is not a geopolitical entity like Great Britain or the kingdom of of Thailand, where you have a border, a government, a flag, an army, a seat in the UN. Uh, That's not the idea here. It's more like the kingly rule of God that has broken in to human history. He has asserted his right to rule the universe, to rule it in judgment and in blessing. So Jesus has been describing what it's like when the gracious, sovereign rule of God breaks into history all through his his ministry on earth. And what he's saying now is, I'm the king of that kingdom, which, by the way, if he is the king of the kingdom of God, that means he's God, and there's really no way to escape that conclusion. And this gives us two very important lessons. First of all, if Jesus is king, if he is lord of heaven and earth, if he is in fact God himself sitting on the throne of the universe, then if he tells us to do something, we have every right to do it. So if he tells us to engage in this mission, we have the right to engage in that mission despite what foreign governments say, despite what our own culture may say, Jesus is a higher authority. Uh, There was a time when I was in, in the army. And if you've ever been in the military, you know that rank matters a lot. And the first thing you do when you see somebody is glance at the little tab on their chest or their shoulders or wherever to find out who are they in relationship to who you are. And if, for example, a captain gives you one order and then a general gives you an order pointing in the opposite direction, do you even hesitate? I mean, which do you do? It is clear that the general so outranks the captain that you just stop thinking about what the captain said. You do what the general told you to do. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. And therefore, it really doesn't matter if other governments say we can't bring the gospel to them. It really doesn't matter if our own culture says this is offensive and intolerant. It doesn't even matter if our own families think we're crazy. Jesus is Lord. And because Jesus is Lord, we have the right to do this. By the way, with this group of missionaries we just commissioned, um, I I asked them during the orientation to raise their hands. If if any of them had been told by some person in their family that they were crazy for doing this, every single one of them raised their hands. And most of them come from Christian families. So we have the right to do it. But not only do we have the right to do it, we have the obligation to do it. You see, it's, it's not the great suggestion. It's not the great idea. It's a great commission. It's an order from, from the king of kings and lord of lords. The kingdom of heaven is not a democracy. This is not a suggestion and it's not an afterthought. It is a command. And therefore, it is not an option for the people of God. So our first question is answered. Our authority for doing missions is nothing less than the universal lordship of Jesus. And that authority goes beyond giving us permission. It lays an obligation on us. The missionary task is a command. Well, what is the command? What is the task here? There is only one imperative verb in this text. And all the other verbs help us understand how to do that. But there's one command here. It's not so obvious in your translations, but there is one order given. And everything else is an order in the way it fulfills that one primary order. And that is to make disciples. But what does it mean to make a disciple? In fact, what's a disciple? Disciple is not a word we use much in in contemporary language. Um, The closest analogy would be student, but even that can be profoundly misleading. Education in the ancient world was very different than education today. So I'm a professor at at Southern Seminary. Uh, I teach a class, Introduction to Missions, that every student has to take which means that I teach a class full of people who would not be there if they didn't have to be. It also means the classes are generally kind of large, and so I teach it in the largest auditorium uh, on, on campus. And I can have 60 or 70 students in these classes, and there are those who sit in the back thinking, I will not notice when they fall asleep, all you students, here's a good piece of advice, we always know when you fall asleep. (laughs) or thinking that we wouldn't notice when they're actually on Facebook or Twitter or something else instead of taking notes. Another hint, we always know that as well, and the reason we know it is that you suddenly laugh very inappropriately in the middle middle of my lecture. But students come in, they listen to the lectures and take notes, they do the reading assignments, they write the papers I assign, they do the projects, they study, they take the final exam, And then they may very well forget everything they've ever learned in that class. They may also do the entire class without ever once having a personal conversation with me. Now, there are those students, usually the ones who sit in front, who are really engaged with the material. But for the most part, it is an impersonal transaction. That is not the way it worked in Jesus' day and could not work in Jesus' day. If you think about it, given the fact that there were no media of any sort, not even print media... The only way you could hear what a teacher had to say was to physically go and hear them. And so a teacher like Jesus or many of the other rabbis or even many of the Greek philosophers would itinerate that they would go from town to town and village to village, probably giving a stock speech and, and odds are good that the Sermon on the Mount is sort of Jesus' stock speech as he went from town to town and village to village. People would hear it, maybe respond, maybe not, maybe walk away, that was for the masses. Disciples though, had a very different experience. A disciple was someone who heard the teacher and said, I wanna be with that person. And the disciple would attach himself, or in the case of Jesus, even herself, to the master, to the teacher. They would go wherever the teacher went. They were with the teacher 24/7. They heard everything he taught. They heard his teaching over and over again so that they had it down cold. In fact, part of the goal was for them to know what the teacher taught so well that they could teach it themselves. But they also had the advantage of, of follow-up conversations, of, of more in-depth discussion of the issues that, that were at hand. The expectation was that they would learn thoroughly what the teacher had to teach, but also that they would become like the teacher. It was said in Jesus' day that you could tell what rabbi somebody studied under just by looking at him, because they would pick up the gestures, the mannerisms, of the one who had taught them. It's almost like they had been remade in the image of their teacher. It's almost like they were there to reflect and represent their teacher to a watching world. That's what a disciple is, brothers and sisters. That's what we are to become. A disciple is someone who knows what his master taught, who also, though, reflects his master's character and way of life and embraces his master's mission. And that is what we are destined to do. Whom he foreknew, he also predestined what? To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So a disciple, yes, is someone who knows the word of God well, but is also someone who reflects the character of God well and pursues the mission of God passionately. That's what a disciple of Jesus is. And this is what we are to do. The command here is make disciples. That's the bottom line of what Jesus has left us to do. Now, there are some critical components to that, so he throws them in. Baptism and teaching obedience. Baptism is given as a mark of discipleship because it shows us just what a radical thing discipleship really is. Discipleship means dying to who you used to be and rising to walk in newness of life. It is a radical and complete break with everything that was before. You know, every time as a congregation you baptize someone... Every time you have someone up there going under the water, I don't know if you realize it or not, but you're actually holding a funeral. You're holding a funeral for who they used to be. And the person who comes out of that water is representing the fact that they are now a new person altogether. And so baptism marks the beginning of discipleship as a radical thing. an all-person-encompassing thing, and an all-person-encompassing thing that binds the person to the the triune God. Uh, Chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, born again and, and sanctified and indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit so that your life is now lived Godward in every way. That's how discipleship begins. But discipleship doesn't stop there. Discipleship then is a process of teaching everything he commanded, and teaching obedience to everything he commanded. So that there is the cognitive element, the mental element that says, I'm going to learn everything Jesus had to say. But there also then is this commitment of the will that says, I'm going to do what I learn. I'm going to do what Jesus has has, has told me to do so that my life is now entirely wrapped up in him. Now, if we're going to make disciples, then looking at the whole of, of, of scripture, there's some other things that are going to end up happening as well. Someone becomes a disciple by hearing the gospel and responding in repentance and faith, which means to make disciples necessarily means to share the gospel. So it involves evangelism. Evangelism is an essential component of fulfilling this. But then where do you make disciples? One-on-one, off in a corner, in secret somewhere? The New Testament pattern is that disciples are made in the context of a local church. That it is the body of Christ that causes each of us to grow to maturity in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us that every one of us needs the gifts that everyone else brings to the table. And Ephesians 4 tells us that it's only as each part does its work that any of us grow to maturity in Jesus. And in fact that God has gifted certain people to have certain roles in the church that help all of us grow in our discipleship. So what we discover then is that this command to make disciples also means a command to share the gospel and where there are none it also means a command to plant churches and those churches have been gifted with leaders who are able to teach and pastor and admonish and so we need to train those leaders and so as we look at this great commission task what we've realized is it's making disciples which includes evangelism disciple making church planting, and leadership development. Those are the things that we are called on to do. And anything less than that is not missions. If, if the Red Cross could do it, it's not missions. If the gospel is not involved, it's not missions. The mission that Jesus has given us inevitably revolves around this issue of disciple-making. And what we see then when we look in the book of Acts is this, this is the unbroken pattern of the apostles. They're the ones who should know more than anyone, what Jesus meant when he gave his final command. I mean, they've been with him for three years. They were commissioned to be his authoritative representatives. And what did they do? They went out and shared the gospel and planted churches. That's what they did. And that means that whatever else we do, this is the solid core of this task that we've been given to do. Interestingly enough, by the way, as you look at the, the, the history of missions, where people went to do works of mercy... Period. Or to pursue justice. Period. Or to redeem culture. Period. That's all that happened, and it ended when they died or left. When people went to share the gospel, disciple believers, and establish churches, both they and those churches, as disciples of Jesus, did works of mercy and kept doing them and kept reproducing people who would do them. And pursued justice in their own sphere of relationships, and sought to bring all of their lives and hence all of their cultural expressions under the lordship of Jesus. So you do the first one, you do them all. You do any of the others, you only do that one. You don't do it as well, and it ends when you leave. And so what we see here then is that Jesus, obviously was a genius, and knew exactly how to accomplish all the things that he had given us to do. Well, where are we supposed to do this? Uh, There are those who try to translate this as you are going make disciples of all nations as though it was just go about your normal life. But then, you know, as you can be involved in making disciples, there's two problems with this. One is that it doesn't work grammatically. And the other is it doesn't work contextually. It doesn't work contextually. That's the most obvious because he says, make disciples of all nations. You can't do that sitting at home. The nations are out there. They're around the world. Now, by nation, again, it's like kingdom. It doesn't mean a political entity. It's closer to like an ethnic group. Um, someone who, by language, by history, by culture, sometimes just by geography, thinks of themselves as us as opposed to them. Think about it. In Jesus' day, in one sense, they were one country. It was called the Roman Empire. Politically, it encompassed most of the ancient world. But within that empire were m- numerous nations. Um, you had the Jews, and you had the Idumeans, and you had the Cilicians, and you had the Egyptians, and you had all those folks. Even in a small area like Palestine, when, when the Israelites conquered it, and it's small, guys. It, you can drive from one end to the other in about eight hours. Um, but you have the Hittites, and the Hivites, and the Girgashites, and, and, and the, the Jebusites, and all of these other groups, all of which were distinct nations, thinking of themselves as us as opposed to them, And each one of those represents this kind of people or nation that we read about in the New Testament. It's a biblical theme from Genesis to Revelation. As soon as God has established the the, the mosaic pattern of nations in Genesis chapters 10 and 11, he launches his redemptive mission through Abraham and says right off the bat, in you all the families and all the nations of the earth will be blessed. His intention was that, and it goes right straight through the Bible to the end where we read that there will be a multitude no one can count from every tribe, language, people, and nation before the throne worshiping God. This is what God intended us to do, not simply to make disciples where we are, but to make disciples to the ends of the earth out of all the peoples of the earth. So, given that this was a command given 2,000 years ago, you would think that at this point, we'd pretty much be done. Reality, unfortunately, is very different from that. The year I was born, there were 2.9 billion people in the world. Today, there are over 2.9 billion people in the world who have never heard the name of Jesus and have no chance of doing so as things currently stand. There's 7.6 billion people in the world today and over 3 billion of them live in places or among peoples with no witness to Jesus. Which means that they will be born, grow up, live, and die without ever hearing the only message that can rescue them from the wrath of God that we all deserve. That's the way things stand right now. And most of those, as I said earlier, live in places where you can't go traditionally as a missionary. In fact, just to bring it down home, bring it closer to home, only 4% of the world's population is evangelical Christian. So even in places where the gospel is known to varying degrees... Most people have not responded to that gospel. And hence the command is not as you were going, it's go. It has the same force of a command that, that Make Disciples does. That we are commanded to go where the gospel isn't yet. Yes, we are commanded, we need to share the gospel with people here where we are. But business as usual will not reach 3 billion people who live among unreached peoples, people groups. Well, if, if that sounds a little overwhelming to us, think how it sounded to those guys when they first heard it. Um, I mean, we've got a lot going for us. They had nothing going for them. It was 11 guys and a group of other, others in their community, no more than, say, 120 of them total. And they had nothing. They were poor. They were politically totally disenfranchised. Um, they had no technology they had nothing working to their advantage. And so Jesus has just given them something that must have seemed, yeah, right, Jesus, how are we going to do that? And he tells them how, very simple. And it's the same way God has always answered those sorts of questions. I'll be with you. In fact, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age, to the very ends of the earth. It's the same answer God has always given. I mean, think back to Moses. Moses is told Moses, who is, by the way, a, he's on the run. I mean, he's, you know, persona non grata back in Egypt. And God tells him to go in and face the most powerful man on earth and tell him to let all of his extremely useful slaves go. And Moses says, sure, who am I to do that? And God wisely never answers the question because the question is irrelevant. It doesn't matter who Moses is. What God says is, I'll be with you. Who you are is irrelevant. I'll be with you. And that's all that matters. And that continues just all the way through. I mean, Jesus himself is God with us, Emmanuel. He promises us here that he will be with us as we carry out the commission he has given us. And our final destiny is to be with him forever. The dwelling place of God will be with men. So, with Jesus, we have all that we need. So there it is. The authority for missions is the fact that Jesus is Lord, Lord of heaven and earth. The the task of missions is to make disciples. The scope of missions is all the people groups of the earth. And the power for missions comes not from our resources or our cleverness, but from the power of, of the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So what does this mean for us here? So what? For the people here at Arlington Baptist Church and for me. I would say there are several things that we each need to do. One of those is to grow. You can't give away what you don't have. And if we are called to make disciples, we need to be disciples. Um, we actually define missionary as the disciple of Jesus who crosses barriers, linguistic, cultural, geographic, to make disciples for Jesus where Jesus is not yet known. It's as simple as that. But the bottom line is first, you must be a disciple. And so if there is anyone here who has never even become a disciple, if there is anyone here who is still trusting themselves in some way and not trusting in the Lord Jesus, let me just remind you of the gospel that I know you have heard every week in this church, that every one of us is a sinner against God. Every one of us is in a state of rebellion. Every one of us has given God countless reasons to despise us, to judge us, and to destroy us. And God is a holy God who gloriously cannot tolerate evil. But in mercy, he looked at totally undeserving sinners like us. And astonishingly enough, he loved us. And he loved us enough to redeem us at astonishing cost to himself. That God became a man in the person of Jesus. And as Jesus, he lived the life we should have lived in our place as our substitute. And then died the death we deserve to die, taking on himself the wrath that our sins deserve. He swapped places with us. He rose again from the dead as the victor over sin and death and hell. And he has now sent out a royal decree into all the earth, commanding everyone everywhere to repent of their rebellion against God and put their trust in Jesus alone to be saved. And anyone who does that anywhere, Arlington or Afghanistan, will be saved. Will be reconciled to God, will be forgiven of their sins, adopted as a child of God, made alive by the Holy Spirit, progressively transformed into the image of Jesus, and guaranteed eternal joy and glory with Him. That's the gospel. And if you have never embraced that gospel, if you have never bowed your knee to King Jesus and said, Everything you say about me is right, I repent and trust in you, then I plead with you to do that today. There is literally no more important decision you will ever make. And it's not a decision you can make apart from the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. So be a disciple. And if you are a disciple, grow as a disciple. Be conformed to the image of Jesus through the means that God has given you. And the means he has given you are his word, his spirit, and his people, which means engage intensely in the life of this church. And be instruments of encouragement and growth in each other's lives as you spur each other on godliness. Become more and more like Christ. Learn God's word, and also learn God's world. Get to know the world that God intends to claim as his own. Um, It is kind of embarrassing when you go around the world to realize how um, geographically challenged most Americans are. Um, Now, it's worse in some places than others. Uh, My son went to Texas A&M University. I knew it. There's an Aggie in the room. He was in the Corps of Cadets, which means he was not just in a cult. He was in the the, the ruling class of the cult. And um, as an upperclassman, the freshmen in his unit were required to greet him loudly, saying, howdy, Mr. fill-in-the-blank, from fill-in-the-blank, majoring in in fill-in-the-blank. Well, Greg was apparently tempted at one point to sort of go easy on them and give where he went to high school, which was Istanbul, Turkey. But he said, no, that's kind of wimping out. I'm going to go with where I was born. So it was Howdy, Mr. Pratt from Abbottabad, Pakistan, majoring in history. And he had more than one freshman look at him and say, Abbottabad, Pakistan. What part of Texas is that? (laughs) It's just a demonstration, sort of, exaggerated a little bit, of uh, the way that most of us really don't know the world very well. And so I'm going I'm to issue a challenge to you right now. Every one of you, as quickly as you can, you can get one online, get a world map, put it on your wall, and study it. Get to know it. Because Jesus intends to place his stamp of, royals, of, of, of royal rule on every single place on that map. And he intends to redeem people for himself from every place on that map. Use a, use a tool like Operation World, which will help you get to know the places in the world. And listen to the news. I'm, I'm talking about real news. American news is not real news. Um, I, I do not watch any American news source. My, my two favorite sources of news are BBC, British Broadcasting Corporation, and the English language uh, version of Al Jazeera. But hear what's really going on in the world. Get to know the world that Christ intends to claim as his own. And then that will lead me from this first section of grow to the next one, which is pray. Use what you learn to feed your prayers. Be engaged in the warfare that is going on in the heavenlies for the world. When you see there's been a coup somewhere, there's probably Christians involved. Pray for those believers that they would, be, they would shine as lights and that God would, would be gracious to them in that situation. Certainly if you're familiar with the situation happening right now in Ukraine and Russia... We have dear friends and brothers and sisters in Jesus on both sides of that war. And we are praying for them and trying to see what we can do to, to help them. We've had over 100 missionary couples displaced because of that war. So as things happen, think about that. This is affecting the work of the gospel. Pray along those lines. My organization, the International Mission Board, imb.org pray. You'll have more prayer material than you know what to do with I would encourage you, in fact, to incorporate prayer for the world as you did this morning. And every time you pray, that you you remember that there is a world out there that Jesus is in the process of reclaiming, and you would pray for the advance of the gospel. We really do depend on prayer. It's not just a a pious thing to say. Um, There's a group in, in many churches in the denomination called the Woman's Missionary Union that publishes a calendar. And it lists every home and foreign missionary on their birthday. Now, some of us, because we were in sensitive places, it would just give first names. Some of us who live in sensitive places and have weird first names, it would just include the letter Z for me on August 31st. But I knew that on August 31st, hundreds of thousands of godly women around the nation were praying for me, and I felt invincible. And I've had many colleagues who would schedule particularly bold Advances in their work for their birthdays just knowing that they had that kind of prayer support. It's not magical. It is a mystery. But God is pleased to accomplish what he does in response to the prayers of his people. And that's the only way I can put it. Next thing you can do is to give. I want to thank you for what you've already done. As a church within the denomination that supports me, you don't know it but you have been supporting me for the last 30 years, and I am deeply grateful for that. Through the cooperative program and the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, we are able to send missionaries to the ends of the earth who do not have to spend 40% of their time raising and maintaining their support levels like people in other organizations do. They can devote their time to the work of the gospel. Not to mention the fact that the gift of fundraising and the gift of being a missionary are not the same. And so we are often demanding that people have gifts that are not natural to their calling. And so we have, what we basically have said is that we as missionaries are going to sort of fundraise cooperatively for all of us. We're all raising support for all of us, and we pool it. And I'd let me add that the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, 100% of it goes to our overseas budget. Not a single penny is used for administration here in the United States. So thank you for what you have done. Let me simply encourage you to continue to give to support missions. We are right now trying to increase the number of missionaries we have overseas by a net of 500. That won't even begin to scratch the surface of the needs that we find around the world, but it's a good start. But the only way we can do that is if missionary giving exceeds inflation, which right now it does not. Right now, it's been growing up at exactly the same rate as inflation. And so we're not really in a position to grow very much. And we plead with you to help us send more missionaries to the field. But we talked about growing. We talked about praying. We talked about giving. We need to talk now about sending and going. And so I would ask you, send us your kids and grandkids. I am not speaking hypothetically. My son is a journeyman in Central Asia. And I could not be more delighted. And I'm hoping that my daughter takes my grandchildren overseas as well. Um, I know this is hard. I saw it in my own mom as I went. Uh, My mom actually led me to Jesus. And when I told her that I was called into ministry, she was delighted. And then when I told her that that meant going overseas, she went, that's not fair. (laughs) Because it's the one thing that as a mother I do not like, but as a Christian, I cannot object to Um, She ended up being one of our most most vocal supporters and, and genuinely loved what we were doing. But it's part of the stewardship of God's grace in the lives of parents and grandparents to say, my kids don't belong to me. They belong to Jesus. And nothing would give me more joy than to see them take the good news of Jesus where it's never been before. So that rather than being a hindrance, as so often Christian parents and grandparents are... Christian parents and grandparents become catalysts, encouragers to see kids go to to the mission field. Send us mature disciples who have professional skills. Now, I've mentioned before that right now, most of those who have no opportunity to hear the name of Jesus live in countries that don't grant missionary visas. Those governments don't have the right to veto the Great Commission. We just have to figure out how else to get in. And so we have for several decades now, been working on the whole issue of what we call creative access, which is simply this. Have a real skill that you can use, that'll get you in someplace where you can then share the gospel, where they wouldn't let you in as a missionary, but pretty much you name it, if it's a profession, you can do it somewhere. And so we are looking for business people of all kinds, for accountants, for engineers, for medical workers of every kind, for accountants, For sports coaches and artists, Um, the most fun thing I ever did overseas, I coached the sport of American football with Central Asian college students and actually won a national championship. Um, Not hard. (laughs) Um, But while I was coaching football players, we also had a team that set up an art gallery. And that would all work. The point is leveraging what God has given you as a means of getting into places and lives that need to hear the gospel, and then going there as a disciple who goes to make disciples. And I might add, send us young and send us old. I think many people believe that missions is primarily a young person's game, and certainly we do like and want young adults to get engaged and to have decades to go. But I can tell you this, that age has its advantages. Um... American culture is, is an outlier. American culture is this weird place where people actually think that it's an accomplishment to be young. I haven't figured that out. What have you done to be young? You just were born. You didn't have anything to do with that either. Um, most of the world agrees with the Bible that says it's an accomplishment to be old. It says that experience produces wisdom. And I can tell you this, there used to be hair up here, and this used to be bright red. And when this fell out and this turned white, I could get away with so much more in sharing the gospel in a Muslim context than I ever could before. I'm serious, so much more. Because their culture said, we have to listen to this guy. We have to respect this guy because he is our elder. And yes, it is harder to learn a language as you get older. We've learned three on the field, and each one was a little harder than the one before. But you can still do it. And simply by loving people and being wise in their presence, retirees can also have a significant role in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. But ultimately what that means, if you are to grow and pray and give and send as a church, that means that people need to go. I'm gonna bring it right down to you personally, each of you who are listening to me right now. Typically, the way we operate is on a very mystical sense of call. So, we're convinced that God has asked all of us to stay right where we are unless we're called. And what called means is you have a dream or vision in the night, followed by a prophetic utterance spoken over you in church the following Sunday. And given how often those happen in this church, that means no one is probably called. Followed then again by walking outside and seeing the clouds rearrange themselves with your name and the place you're supposed to go. And then you might maybe think about it. And the thing is, although God does sometimes do some of those things, that's not his normal mode of operation. Instead, actually, as you read through the New Testament, what you discover is that the, the call of God is the call to salvation. Overwhelming use of the word. It's the call to salvation. God calls people to repent and believe in Jesus. Jesus. And that call comes as a package deal. Because those who are called to salvation are also called to sanctification. Everyone who is called to Jesus is called to live a holy life. They are called, we are all called to suffering for the sake of the gospel. Kind of call most people don't really want to think much about. And we are called to service, all of us. So if you come up to me and ask me, am I called, my answer is, are you a, are you a believer? And if the answer is yes, then the answer to their your question is yes, you're called. The question is not, are you called? The question is, how and where are you called? And then, as we think about it, since you're all called, I would encourage you to flip the usual question. Normally, we say, why should I go? But given that the command of Scripture is so clear, given that the needs of the world are so overwhelming, given that you live in the most evangelized country in the world, with the most number of churches. The default question should be, why shouldn't I go? If I have the ability, and God at all puts the desire in your heart, then you should go. Now you discern that not through dreams or visions or prophetic utterances or clouds, you discern that through the council of the church. It is the local church that discerns who is called and who is not. And I might add that my organization, you come to us, and say, I want to be a missionary, we send you right back to your local church. And we go no further until your church says you're called. Those are the people who can help you process it. But I cannot help but think that given the vastness of lostness in the world, that there are more people who could join us than are doing so right now. And I can also tell you this. After decades of doing it, No matter how hard it is, there is nothing more glorious than to take the gospel to those who have never heard it. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you for the obedience of people in the past who got the gospel to us. Father, thank you for the transmission of your word from Palestine 2,000 years ago to wherever it is that we heard it for the first time. Father, thank you for the grace that you gave us to hear it and to respond in repentance and faith. And Father, I pray that the gospel would not stop inside the walls of this building. I pray, Father, that not only would the gospel sound in this neighborhood and in this metropolitan area, but that you would raise up people from this congregation who would go to the ends of the earth to talk about Jesus. And I pray this in his name. Amen.